Hello and welcome to the Village Halls podcast, sponsored by Allied Westminster, the UK's largest specialist provider of village hall insurance and the home of Village God. Behind every village, church and community hall, there are often intriguing stories to uncover. Since moving to the small village of Emery Down in the New Forest, Peter Power has been delving into the history of his local hall and the surrounding area and has found links to everything from Alice in Wonderland to a notorious snake catcher. (laughs) Peter, who is a trustee and chair of Emery Down and Bank Village Hall, is also a highly experienced crisis management expert and so has a few thoughts to share around recent events too. Thanks for joining me on the show today, Peter. It's a pleasure, Johnny. Okay, and, and so I've mentioned the village you live in and how you've become part of the community there. So let's just start with you telling me about your move to Emery Down a few years back and, and why you became involved with the village hall there. Well, I began back, I suppose, about 20 years. My wife and I, we were living then in the middle of London in a very strange and fascinating area called uh, Pimlico, yeah, uh, which is just on the banks of the Thames there. And uh, that in itself, strange enough, had a village-like feel to it. And oddly enough, it became part of a film called Passport to Pimlico many years ago. Anyway, we decided to move down here principally because uh, my two sons, who were quite young, were were not far away. uh, So that was pretty good. And and secondly, well, New Forest, everyone seems to know it. Everyone's got the fondest of memories. It has that sort of cosy mythology about it almost that you know parents grandparents generations before were here they they, they camped here and there's a bit of an Enid Blyton about the whole place <laughs> absolutely uh, so yeah it, uh, we were very happy to move here we started off just down the road in a place called Bartley uh, which is a very short move just from the bottom of the M3 where I discovered by coincidence the chap who built the house happened to be a friend of my great 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 grandfather although I didn't know that at the time yeah but my wife has got very green fingers. She particularly wanted a garden, her own garden. And so we moved just up the road to Emery Down uh, about 12 years ago. Frankly, haven't looked back since. Yeah, and, and as I say, you're now, you're now chair of the Village Hall as well. So how did you, how and why did you get involved with that side of things? To be honest, Johnny, I'm not too sure. I'd become a trustee <laughs> of the Village Hall some years ago. Uh, because I happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, and someone said, "Look, you know, do you want to come and be a trustee?" Uh, they probably thought I was had something to contribute. Yeah, but I, I of course, I, I said yes. Yeah, and and the hall was then run on pretty old-fashioned lines, you might say, in those days. Nothing was automated. Of course, it was before uh, proper use had been made of the internet and so on. But it seemed like something I, I felt naturally keen to do, and. When you start to get involved, when you become a trustee in particular of something uh, of, of a hundred or nearly a hundred years old village hall which sits here, as it has done for generations yeah. uh, in this village, you it gets under your skin. You you really feel for something, and then you think about often the amount of christenings and weddings and birthdays, and God knows what has happened here over the years. And you can almost feel it in, in the building. There's a huge amount of oak in our building. It was yeah. We'll talk in a minute about how, how it came to be built. Uh, but I'm reminded sometimes when I walk around our hall, very often on my own, actually, and may help to put a few decorations up or take them down for events, you see little reminders going back way before, way before the Second World War, for example, of things that have happened there. And how, for example, in World War II in particular, 
because uh, it was actually opened in 1927, uh, a great many dances were held there for numerous troops who were marshaled in the New Forest ahead of D-Day. And of course, all these young men, many from Canada in particular around here, had no idea whether they'd ever come back yeah. to any form of normality. And a great many did, of course, lose their lives. So apart from a queue to be baptized at the local Baptist church just down the road in Emerytown, uh, a lot of dancers were held here. And we were very lucky that a film crew was here not long ago. And they recreated that, one of these events for a film that they were making. And it was great fun to get a glimpse into what it looked like because the hall needed very little alteration to take it back to what it was in the early 30s. But when you get involved in something like that, it has a rich history in more ways than one. It becomes a joy and you really feel you're just a caretaker between generations past and generations to come. Okay, so tell me about the, the beginnings, the very earliest days then, around, what, 100 years ago? Yeah, if you if we go back to, actually, strange enough, to 1897, uh, by coincidence, to, uh, to Canada, um, an organisation sprung up there, actually, called the Women's Institute. Yeah. Uh, the Women's Institute was eponymously about women and doing a lot of good deeds, um, various things for charity and so on. They uh, wanted to set up something in rural communities and during World War One, for example, uh, a lot of support from women in rural communities with social activities to help produce more food and so on, very difficult times during that particular war. Now, about 50 local women had enrolled in the inaugural meeting of the Women's Institute uh, in October 1920. And I have to say at this point, I'm indebted to a a lady called Angela Trend and her colleague Sarah Sarah Hall, who live in Emory Down, who've done a huge amount of research on this. They are two of our local historians, and thanks to them, we know so much. Yeah. But in 1920, a number of ladies met and decided we need a proper place to actually meet. And along came two interesting people, Mary and Charlotte Chamberlain, whose uncle Joseph was then the pioneering mayor of Birmingham, and actually. Well, Mary and Charlotte Chamberlain, they bought a small piece of land here in the village, uh, and they're very generous in that sense, and they particularly wanted to make a sort of arts and crafts style hall. Um, and they turned to a local builder by the name of Joseph Payne. Now, it was eventually opened in uh, 1927, and it had a sort of, it, it, it had a ladies' cloakroom of some size, and uh, it talked a great about tea and cakes being supplied and all those good things. But the interesting thing in particular that people don't know really is that the first president of the Women's Institute was Alice Hargreaves. Now, Alice Hargreaves uh, originally, when she was a little girl, was Alice Little. And she, without doubt, was the inspiration for actually Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Lewis Carroll's real name was Charles Dodson, the Reverend Charles Dodson, uh, lived at Oxford University. And Alice Little, her father, was the dean of Christchurch College in Oxford. So there's a direct connection between the two. Mm. And I understand it that I think they're on a boat, possibly on the River Thames, where Charles Dodson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll, uh, came up with a story where he clustered it around Alice and imagined her as a little girl, as she was then, disappearing down rabbit holes and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And she begged him to actually repeat the story and then asked him, look, surely, uh, Uncle Charles or Uncle Lewis, you can actually turn it into a book. He hadn't thought about it, but he did. And, of course, Alice's Ventures Through the Looking Glass became an extremely famous book. Of course. And yeah. Alice herself uh, stayed in the area 
she, in due course, married Reginald Hargreaves, and they actually had three boys. Now, she married in 1880. And what's interesting, the other three boys, Alan and Leopold, both perished in the First World War, along with a huge number of young men in this village, and, of course, right across the country. Yeah. Uh, and her two sons are commemorated in the Lichgate, the village church nearby. And people often look at it and have no idea these were the sons, the real sons of the real Alice in the Wonderland. And I wonder sometimes whether there's a connection between Alice's father, who, as I said, was dean of Christ Church, because the church here is referred to as Christ Church. And one of my other roles is to look after the fabric of that church. Uh, so I've come to know the church as well as the hall relatively well. Um, and so it was for the Women's Institute for, for a long time. But then uh, in 1997, sadly, the Women's Institute closed. And then people may, may have started to wonder, well, what are we going to do with the hall? Shall we use it for housing or whatever? Fortunately for us, the two ladies, Charlotte and Mary Chamberlain, created a, what they call a deed of gift, transferring hall ownership in the event of the demise of the Women's Institute to trustees, and for those trustees henceforth to make sure the hall is there for good and proper community purposes. And that's what it does today. That's our mantra, and that is one of the things that I think makes this hall particularly attractive. So it has an interesting background, and, and uh, sometimes we have people who want to come along and recreate Manhattan's tea parties uh, <laughs> and all those sorts of things, uh, and it's great. I just love the fact we have so many people. It's, it, we're taking bookings now way up to 2023 and so on, and it, it, it'll always be the same for as long as we can keep it as a community. Um, in, environment, um, we will always have different parties, different celebrations. Ev everything from an animal, an animal osteopath who's now booked it for several years, to other people flower arranging. Yeah. Uh, because there's so much oak in it, a lot of people who have a great passion for trees, bearing in mind this is a new forest, uh, love holding sort of yoga type classes here. And there is a little garden next door, which we're quite proud of, that people love in particular for wedding celebrations. So that's how it operates. That's what it is. That's his background. Um, and myself and uh, five other trustees are responsible for it. And and how wonderful that those people who who really started everything off had the foresight to ensure that the main purpose of the hall was preserved for everyone in the future in that way with that deed of gift. Yes, I think we've, we're very fortunate that, that two, uh, two women, Mary and Charlotte Chamberlain, A, were decent enough to buy the plot of land and make sure this very solid and attractive building was built, and B, that they ensured in perpetuity it would exist for the function that it was designed for, albeit not the Women's Institute, but something akin to it, which is community activities. Yeah. Now, now tell me a bit about this local character, Peter, the the snake catcher, Brusher Mills. <laughs> Who is it? I know you've looked into it. Uh, yeah, it'd be great for you to share a little bit of information about him as well. I, I, I guess, Johnny, I'm a repository for completely useless knowledge when it comes to looking back at these things. But <laughs> the, the the village itself, there are the, the sort of three critical components that, that make it particularly attractive, apart from the people who live here, of course. Yeah. We have an excellent village pub just up the road from the village church and just down the road from the village hall. And these three uh, physical entities, along with things like the almshouses, which uh, were built by the same individual who created the church, an actual 
an admiral in the Royal Navy by the name of Boltby, who uh, did particular work uh, when the slave trade was stopped, trying to stop anybody trying to um, keep that going. Yeah. Boltby lived here. He, 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 he amassed a certain level of wealth. And through him, for example, the church was built and the almshouses were built. And he's commemorated in the church. In the church itself, uh, we have stones, for example, and I'll say where I'm mentioning this in a moment, to someone called Moses Blake, mm -hmm. and he was sextant of the church for 50 years. And then his daughter became sextant for 50 years, and she was the first in the country to be a lady sextant, which essentially looked after the church, dug the graves, and so on. Now, pretty much close to Moses Blake's plaque, uh, we have information on the church wall about somebody called Brusher Mills. Brusher Mills actually was born and raised as a child, of course, in a small cottage next to where Moses Blake lives, in a village called Sil in a little, little road called Silver Street, uh, which is a Latin uh, that they tell me for the road to the woods. And that's where I live as well, and that's where I am at the moment speaking to you. Now, Brusher Mills um, was born in a small house, but in due course went to live actually in the woods and actually created more than one perhaps small um, dwelling with small thatched areas, almost like a wigwam, I think, from Red Indian times. Mm. But essentially what he did, while other people were making charcoal, there's a great industry here for charcoal burning and collecting. And the burning of charcoal, the, the, for example, the cottage next door to me is Charcoal Cottage, and it's almost preserved as it was when the time when they were burning wood for charcoal. But Mills... Uh, decided the best thing he could do was become a snake catcher. And he was registered uh, as a snake catcher and the last snake catcher in the whole of the British Isles. And he, a lot of people would find him in the forest and sit down with him. He'd make them a cup of tea from whatever he was brewing in his funny little wigwam and chat away to them. And he became so proficient. At one time, if I remember rightly, he was catching snakes and actually selling them to the London Zoo. Now, he would walk around and chat to anybody and so on, and people would speak to him. And there's even a pub down the road called the Snake Catcher, named after him. Yeah. Um, and in due course, he became an old man and died. But what I found interesting is another little feature of Silver Street. It has the old uh, post office telephone kiosk, when, the days when nobody had a telephone apart from the one British Telecom one in a classic K6 telephone red kiosk. But it had fallen into disrepute. It was covered in ivy. And a few of us got together and repaired it. The British Telecom sold it to the local parish council for one pound, uh, and we've converted it into to a very healthy bookshop and um, point of information for the very high number of tourists and travellers and visitors who come to Emery Down, uh, and they often stop up there and sign a little book about who they are and so on. It's great yeah. to read what people write, including the remarkable number of Brusher Mills's ancestors. Uh, sorry. Uh, progeny years after his death. <laughs> a surprising number of them went to Australia. Now, whether they went there as part of a Majesty's pleasure, I'm not sure. But several people have written in there that they are descendants and have come back to look for uh, where great Uncle Brusher used to live. And I find that most in intriguing. So there are all sorts of things, but it's sort of, for many of us, me in particular, these rather quirky little things make the village go round. Uh, but it's not one that just sits there as if it's on a sort of chocolate box cover. It is a living, breathing village where people come and go and sell houses and new people come in at a reasonably healthy rate. 
yeah. and back to the hall. That's one reason why we do hold events, and certainly one just a few weeks ago, specifically to bring together the new people from the village along with those who've lived here for generations. That's it. As soon as COVID had stopped, to do something like that was the right thing to do, and and it certainly is. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned COVID there. It, it, it's it's clear that the, you know the history there has got under your skin. And and we are, of course, living in a, a moment of history ourselves right now. And I guess as someone who, as I mentioned earlier, has made crisis management their profession for many years, these must also be very interesting times now for you. Yes, they are. Um, I find myself now uh, giving advice to the rulers of, would you believe, Abu Dhabi out in the Middle East on such issues because yeah. uh, they, they had they dealt with COVID quite successfully, strange enough, but because they're, they're a very wealthy country and managed to vaccinate a lot of their people. But before that, I, I had been helping other organizations around the world and I was very fortunate. Yeah, I'm fascinated to know, Peter, with, uh, you know, with, with, with your two separate heads on, one, one, one of a crisis management expert and the other as chair of a, of a village hall. What, what the key lessons we could all learn from this? From a a community perspective i i the interesting thing for me with it's almost a clash isn't it i mean for for a great number of years i i was at scotland yard and i, I was very much involved in things like counter-terrorism and the days when the ira were letting off bombs almost weekly in london and elsewhere in the mainland yeah and even then i i was uh, responsible in a place called potter's bar in north london for a period for the uh, Ter- uh, parents teachers association and i they, they contrast of during the day of dealing with horrific scenes of explosions and all the things that people might imagine happen when people die in such mm. tragic circumstances and in the evening talking about whether mrs tiddlewinks would making enough mince pies or something or other yeah it, it had a sobering effect and in a way i i think that's here because uh, life in the village hall as i was saying earlier that goes on more or less unchanged for generations it's an interesting contrast between the hurly-burly and sometimes tragic world of crisis management. Yeah. And it's, it's that contrast uh, which I find quite fascinating. Somebody, someone who read sociology, uh, read that at the university, is it, something that always fascinates me. So it's not necessarily, I'm not, I don't think I'm one of the trustees be, simply because it's some sort of therapy, uh, but I just love that contrast that elsewhere in the world um, dramas happen much more frequently in the, the memory down. But a lot of people living here, of course, don't earn their living from the land as time's gone by. And they themselves are engaged in all sorts of occupations, uh, some some nearby, some in Hampshire, some in London. So that's what makes it, I think, a relatively healthy and thriving community and very eclectic as well. I like the idea of you know, different people from different professions, different outlooks as well. It just makes it sort of more or less work, and long may it do so. Yeah, interesting, Peter. I like the I like the picture of contrast that you you paint there. It's almost a case of yeah, we've been through a terrible time, but village halls, community activity, just demonstrate that life life goes on in essence, and and we see that of course from the history as well that you've that you've looked at previously, and 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 the wonderful legacy uh, that the WI left for you in the in the, in the village so it kind of all comes together wonderful wonderful stuff it is, i well i think so and i think my colleague trustees think so i certainly have a strong sense that as i said before we in, in inherited 
the expectation, the requirement to keep this hall going in perpetuity, to hand it on to other trustees, and other trust trustees will hand it on to further trustees uh, for God knows how long, and I hope it's going to be as long as possible. But when we have endured, as everybody has, uh, just the, the, the sweeping pestilence of COVID, mm. uh, as people did here, and we've had people perish in the village as a result of that, and rather like the First World War, you might say, you know, not a family was left untouched, somebody knew somebody, somebody was very ill, somebody perhaps died. It just reminds me that the ebb and flow of catastrophes, crises, um, will always be the case. And I'm reminded of that also, and I think it was 1921, uh, when the lich gate to the church, remember I mentioned this is the war memorial to yeah. also to the village. But on that the photograph, everybody came together and they're all wearing their Sunday best. Obviously a black and white photograph in those days and people had to kind of try and keep still while the cameraman did his best. But the sadness for me, there are lots and lots of women there and so few young men. Uh, and you've only got to look at the inscriptions from a relatively small village, just how many perished on the battlefields of World War One, including, of course, two of the children of the real Alice in Wonderland. And, yeah. and so when you do get major problems like COVID, they're not quite as unusual as you might think. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thanks for joining me today, Peter. It's It's been absolutely fascinating hearing about Emery Down and the history of the hall and the local area there. And uh, thanks also for your insight around the pandemic. And and if your village hall out there, wherever you're based, also has a rich and fascinating history, why not come on the show yourself and, and tell us all about it as Peter has? Uh, I'd really love to hear from you because apart from anything, I think it's important to document the contribution that halls often make to their local communities, both in the past and now, of course. And I imagine that's something you would agree with, Peter. Very much so. Uh, I'm very much aware that ours isn't a unique hall. I'm sure others around the country have equally and possibly even more interesting uh, backgrounds and heritage. And uh, I think village halls are part of the fabric of this country. I really do. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, so please get in touch and uh, tell us tell us more stories. And thanks again, Peter. It's a pleasure. And uh, that's all, folks, for this episode. Please keep getting your entries in for our wonderful Villagers photo competition, everyone, as you could win £1,000 for your village hall and £500 for yourself. There's information about the competition on our website. And thanks as ever to our headline sponsor and specialist insurance provider, Ally Westminster, for supporting our podcast and whose services you can discover more about at villageguard.com and to online booking system provider, Hallmaster, who also help make our podcast possible and can be found at hallmaster.co.uk. I'll be posting some links to our homepage as always, particularly one to the Emery Down and Bank Village Hall website, so you can look at what is a, a really fascinating building there as well. And uh, other than that, you've been listening to the Village Halls podcast, a unique listening community for Britain's village, church and community halls, and anyone interested in the vital community services they provide. We'll be back again soon with another episode. So if you haven't already, please visit thevillagehallspodcast.com to subscribe, sign up for updates, link through to our social media pages, and to find out more. Until the next time, goodbye for now.